This is my first time speaking in this setting, in this caliber, so if my thoughts are a little scattered, ask for your uh, patience and forgiveness there. But excited about what the Lord's been teaching me here, so let's get rolling. Today we're talking about the spiritual hall of shame. Not the hall of fame, but the hall of shame. As these kids echo my thoughts here. Uh, looking at the negative, negative examples of Judges 17 and 18. By negative, negative examples, I mean uh, things we see that people did wrong that we can learn from, hopefully not make the same mistakes as they. Um, central key, what we're going to learn is what happens when people choose to disobey what they know to be God's revealed truth. Uh, let me just open in prayer here and we'll get started. God, I feel inadequate um, up here. I feel that um, I may not be able to portray what you want me to, Lord. And so I just pray that you'd help me to be transparent, Lord, and that your message would get through. Uh, people aren't here this morning to hear what I have to say about what you have to say. And so I pray that you would speak through me, um, that my thoughts would be clear, and that above all, your name would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Getting us started here. Sorry about that. A brief background. Uh, we've been studying the book of Judges. The first 16 chapters have been narrative uh, stories of the downward spiral of Israel into sin. We're followed by oppression, repentance, forgiveness, and deliverance at the hands of the judges. So we see this cycle all the time going through the different judges. Israel would turn away from the Lord. They would sin. Um, they would be sold into some slavery or uh, some oppression by the uh, the other countries, they would repent, cry out to the Lord. The Lord would have compassion on them, forgive them, and deliver them at the hands of the judges. We remember all the judges, Othniel, Gideon, Samson, just to name a few. Uh, the rest of the book here, chapters 17 through 21, are a little different. Uh, we're no longer talking about the judges, but these are two stories that give us insight into the moral condition of the times. And the key phrases repeated in uh, 17.6 and 21.25 that kind of give us insight into what was going on in these times, is in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. I'm going to tackle the first of these two stories in chapter 17 and 18. Uh, so we'll get into that here. A question as to when these stories take place. Um, scholars believe that it's not chronologically after Samson. Last week we talked about Judges chapter 16 and Samson. Uh, these stories are not believed to be right after Samson, um, but just the moral stories that uh, fell sometime in the place in the Israel's sin and downward spiral, thought to have taken place uh, at the time of the first judge, which was Othniel, if you remember. And the reason we uh, come up with that is because there's reference to Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. So this couldn't have been long after Joshua, after Moses. So it was right when they're in the land, uh, probably around the time of Othniel, the first judge. When I first was uh, allotted this portion of Scripture, you can tell I've been reading the Old Testament because I say allotted. Uh, <laughs> I thought, what am I going to do? This is a dry, just a story. It's just a crazy story of some crazy Israelites. How am I going to get any application? I was scared that pulling application would be like pulling out teeth. Uh, but as I studied, as I read through it a couple times, it's full of application, and now my fear is that I won't be able to uh, portray all the applications that I have here. So 
let's go ahead and get into the story. I'm going to read some of it, and uh, as it gets longer, we'll go ahead and skip over it. If you'd care to, turn to chapter 16, or 17 and 18 in your book of Judges. Otherwise, it's up here and you can read it with me. 17.1 Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will return them to you. A graven image was probably a uh, idol carved out of silver, and a molten image is probably an idol carved out of wood and then covered in silver. Just so you know about that. Verse four. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took two hundred pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith, who made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Everyone following so far? Micah then said to him, Dwell with me, and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. That's the background of Micah and his priest. And now we move on in the story, chapter 18. This gets a little longer, so I'm kind of going to skip over some parts and summarize here. Uh, starting verse 1, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day an inheritance had not been allotted to them as possessing among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites are traveling, Basically here, they're wandering and they're looking for a place to go. So summarizing this up here, uh, the tribe of the Danites send out five spies and they go through the hill country of Ephraim, which is where we remember Micah's house is, and they find his house. And when they're near the house, they recognize the voice of the Levite priest, probably because he had a southern accent. Uh, that's probably how they, told, they knew that he was a Levite. And they asked them, what are you doing up here? Why, why are you all the way up in the hill country of Ephraim if you're a Levite priest? And so the Levite goes on to say, here's what Micah has done for me. He's taken me into his house. He's paying me to be his priest in this idolatrous temple that he has made. And the spies are like, cool, this is great. Can you please ask God for us uh, if our way that we're going is going to be prosperous? So the priest, I'm sure, probably doesn't even get the Lord's approval. Just tells the guys what he wants to hear. Says, yeah, you're going to be fine going up. 
So the five men departed and they came to a town called Laish and saw the people who were living in it in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, for there was no ruler humiliating them from anything in the land. And they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So these spies go and they see this town of Laish. It's up in the middle of nowhere. There's nobody's protected. It's out. It's secure. So they run on back down to their tribe and they say to their leaders, here's what we found. We better jump on this quick. Let's go. Let's take Laish and we can live there. Uh, so he tells them all about that. I encourage you to study the story on your own. We don't really have time to read all of it, but um, as always with anything, um, would encourage you to do some study on your own, read this story on your own. So it says that, verse 11, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out for Laish. Then uh, they went up and they camped and they came across, they're going through the hill country of Ephraim. We'll get to a map in a second, but they're traveling up through the hill country and they come uh, to the house of Micah. And the five spies are like, hey, they say to the other guys, did you know this guy has idols? He's got a temple in there with idols. And so for some reason, the tribe of Dan, we'll get into the reasoning later, uh, they decide to camp at the gates of Micah's house. And the five spies go in and they raid his house and they steal his idols and uh, they run out with them. And so the priest says to them, what are you doing? Why are you leaving with my idols? Right here, verse 19, what are you doing? Why are you leaving with my idols? Okay. And they said to him, be silent, put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or is it better to you to be a priest of the tribe and a family in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven image and went among the people. So the priest is trying to stop him at first, saying, hey, don't take Micah's idols, he needs those. And then uh, they say, hey, would you rather be a priest for this one guy, or would you rather be a priest for a whole tribe? And so Micah, who was, or uh, this priest who was seeking his own way, thought, yeah, I better go with these guys. So he took Micah's stuff and they all headed out. Uh, verse 22, we see that Micah was somewhat troubled by this, as you can imagine. And so he gathered all his neighbors together and he took off after the tribe of, after the 600 warriors. And he caught up with him and he cried out to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you have sem- assembled together? And this is what Micah says. You have taken away my gods, which I have made, and the priest, and have gone away. And what do I have besides? So how can you say to me, what's the matter with you? And so he's worried that uh, they've stolen his things. He confronts them. The Danites said, basically, don't talk to us, otherwise you're going to get the beat down. And so Micah turns around and goes home without his idols. The Danites continue along, and they come to Laish, and they struck it. They conquered the city, and they set up, and they lived there. they renamed the city Dan. How appropriate that I should be giving this message. Uh, and it was formerly Laish. Verse 30, And the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, this is the priest, the son of Gershom and the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. 31, So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made. All the time, the house of God was at Shiloh. So, we've got a story here. we got a mother makes an idol for her son. The son worships the idol, sets up his own priesthood. Uh, Danites are moving through. They steal the idols. They conquer the city, and now they're living in the city of Dan. 
quick summary. So it, coming back to the idea of the Hall of Shame, there's four characters in this text that I want to look at, um, I think that kind of messed up. And uh, so I'm putting them in the Hall of Shame. First one is the mother. Mom, we'll call her. Second one, we got Micah. Not this Micah, of course. Jonathan, the priest. And Dan, not this Dan either, although I've done probably many things to deserve shame. We're talking about the tribe of Dan. Okay, first, let's look at mom. Her shame, I've identified as the sin of stealing from God. Uh, What she did wrong. First of all, she had no correction of her son. He stole all this money from her, and she didn't correct him, but instead she blessed him. Um, as if, if you remember what we read, she had put a curse on the money, and uh, Michael was afraid of the curse, I'm sure, and so that's why he returned the silver. And instead of uh, punishing her son in any way, she blessed him, probably to counteract a curse. Um, and then she thought, hey, this will be a good idea. I think I'll make some idols for my son. And she actually led him right into idolatry. This is a no-no for all the mothers out there. Why, why did she not correct her son when he stole from her, you might be asking? Because she was also a thief. If we look back in verses 3 and 4, uh, when he returned the piece of the silver to her, she said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. Now, we remember this silver was how many? 1,100 pieces? And then in the text, how many did she dedicate to the Lord? Anybody remember? 200. So she says, I wholly dedicate it to the Lord. I give it all to the Lord. And then she gives 200. What, what happened to the other 900? I'm guessing it went into her pocket. Uh, how much was this 1100? It was actually a large sum of money. Um, probably a small fortune. Uh, the evidence of this is in verse 10 when the priest comes along to Micah. Micah says, hey, I got a deal for you. I'll pay you 10 pieces of silver a year and uh, room and board, basically, and the priest thinks that's just great. So 10 pieces of silver a year, and this is 1,100 pieces of silver. So that's a lot of money, big fortune. Uh, but she kept it all back. So what can we learn from the negative example of mom? Uh, let's see. Sorry. First thing for all you parents out there, I'm not a parent. I don't know that responsibility um, but it seems pretty low down and dirty that his mom would actually just lead her son right into idolatry. Uh, Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. I would say that Micah's mother was a willing party to his death. She led him right into idolatry, didn't correct him. Uh, he stole from her, and instead she just made him these idols so he could set up his false temple. Second point we can learn Lying to God because of greed has serious consequences. If we remember in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they were part of the New Testament church and they sold a part of, piece of property and they said, we're going to give all this money to the church. But between themselves, they're like, okay, we're going to tell them we sold it for this much, but we're really going to keep some for ourselves. So Ananias goes before the apostles and he says, we sold our land, here's all the money. And you remember what happened to him? Anybody? Toast, okay? So Sapphira comes in a little later after they've dragged out the dead Ananias. She comes in and uh, they ask her, how much did you get the land for, you know? And she's knowing that she's keeping some of this. She tells them the same lie and what happened to her? You got it, toast. 
So lying to God because of greed has serious consequences. I think there's some application in the way that maybe we give on Sunday morning, maybe the way that we share with each other. Um, Is there things in our lives that we say that we'll commit to the Lord, say that we'll give to the Lord, and then that we hold part back? This is what we can learn from mom. Moving on, we remember our members of the Hall of Shame flying in there. Micah, let's check him out next. I've identified his shame here as the sin of self-made religion. Uh, The first thing Micah did wrong is he ignored what the scriptures said regarding Israel worship. Uh, Micah, I imagine, was familiar with the Ten Commandments, which were given by his grandfather Moses. uh, Or not his grandfather, but anyway, sorry, bad point. Heresy, no. Uh, Anyway, he was familiar with this. In Exodus 3, 5, 3 through 5, 23 through 5 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Um, he ignored this. He made a, a, a false image. The thing uh, that we notice about Micah is he was pretty sincere. He wanted to please the Lord by making an image. Um, but this was totally contrary to the scripture. So this is the first place where he goes wrong. Uh, he ignored the scripture. Secondly, he was clearly influenced by the Canaanite culture. Uh, the Canaanite culture of that day surrounding Micah was very idolatrous in their worship. They made a lot of images. And so he was confused. He had the right idea of wanting to worship the true God, but he took the Canaanite culture and he blended that in with it, saying, I'll make an idol of God, even though that was against what the word of the Lord had said. Uh, this is called religious syncretism. He made his own religion. He basically took what he liked of this one, took what he liked of the Canaanite religion, thought he'd make his own, which would be uh, good for him. Maybe it wouldn't hold him to such a higher standard. He could do what he wanted, set up his own priest. He even, as we read, set up his own son as one of his priests. So, um, pretty interesting. Uh, it's sad to me to think that uh, a man could make a god. And then uh, it's even it's even more strange to me that we see when, when the Danites stole his idols, he ran after them and he said, how could you steal the God which I have made? So I think it's strange that not only a man would make a God, but that he would have to rescue his God because he says, when the idols are taken, he says, what have I left? I have nothing. He took my idols, he took my priest, I have nothing left. So he's a pretty misled young pup. What we can learn from the negative example of Micah, first of all, obey what God's word says. Now, it's really easy for me to get on this computer and type out these words, obey what God's Word says. It's easy for me to stand up here, tell you to obey what God's Word says, but uh, this is something that I struggle with every single day, all the time, uh, reading the Word of God and actually putting it into practice. Uh, so it may be easy for us to type it, maybe easier for us to say it, um, but this is where Micah went big time wrong, is he knew what the Word of the Lord was, he knew what the Ten Commandments were, and yet he chose to disobey for the sake of what he wanted. And so um, an encouragement this morning to myself, to us, we need to obey what God's Word says. This needs to be our final authority. We can't be letting in the culture and all this into what we uh, practice. How does the culture around us influence our lives and our worship? Um, Just some things I thought of. um, The culture around us influencing our worship, I think, Maybe in the way we treat each other, maybe in the way uh, we come to church. Is it kind of a cultural thing that we uh, 
oh, I, I came on Sunday and I fulfilled my quota and that's all I have to do. I don't have to do anything else for the weekend. Yeah, maybe I'll go on Wednesday if I'm feeling really good, but uh, the rest of the time is living for me. We live in a very self-centered culture, uh, doing things very for ourselves. And I don't think that's how the New Testament church works, I think. Um, they're very God-centered and centered on each other and encouraging each other. Um, but just something for you to think about. How does the culture around you influence your life and your worship? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of applications you can come up with for yourself on that note. We cannot mix and match what we like from Scripture with what we like from this world. This will always end in failure. God's Word must be our only source for instruction on how we live and worship. Again, where Micah went wrong. He took what he liked from this, what he liked from the culture, blended it together and made his own thing. We can't do that. We have to have our Scripture be our final authority, the Lord of God, the Word of God be our final authority. We can't go off uh, making our own images of God. We'll talk about that in just a second, the idolatry of that. Um, but we can't mix these things. Um, scripture needs to be our final authority. A quick word on idolatry. God forbids the worship of false gods, but He also forbids the worship of the true God by images. They rob God of His glory. So anything, even though Micah may have had the right mindset of wanting to worship the true God, he went wrong by making the idol and worshiping the idol. Um, it's as if you're trying to take the God of the universe and put Him into a little piece of silver. And this steals all of God's glory. It's kind of like a picture. Um, none of us like a bad picture of ourselves. You know, when you see it and you're like, ah, that's not me, that misrepresents me. This is what idols are like to God. Example A. <laughs> this picture misrepresents me, I think. I look like I'm doped up on some laughing gas. Smitty, does that represent you very well? Smitty looks a little hazy there, but I'm definitely way out. But this is what images do. They, they uh, misrepresent... And I know this is a poor example. I'm sorry. I didn't put it in Smitty's slideshow at the wedding, so he's mad at me. So There you have all seen my ugly, dopey face. No picture or image, no matter how skillfully made, can possibly reflect the nature of God. So we need to be careful what we put uh, in front of us that may steal from God's glory. Um, going a little further, not, I don't think in today's culture we struggle as much with maybe making carved idols, or, uh, but we make mental idols of God. We must view God from a scriptural perspective only. I think a lot of us uh, may be tainted by the philosophies of the age, the 20th century philosophies of God, and we think, oh, he's just some pie in the sky, a big fluffy cloud that wants to prosper me and wants to bless me, and he'll let me do whatever I want because he cares for me, and... Um, I can just live any way I want because he's just this big ball of love up in the sky. And this is not the God at all. We have to take it uh, from both both sides. We see that, yes, he is a loving God, but he's the God of wrath. He's the God of judgment. So I would encourage you as an application um, to all maybe do an in-depth study of the attributes of God from Scripture and study what the true God is to be careful that we don't make any uh, mental idols of the Lord, that we're not thinking of God uh in a way that's tainted by our culture, tainted by the world around us, but that we scripturally see the true attributes of God. Uh, taking it one step further, uh, Gary Inrich in his book had a good application. Anything in our lives to which we attach the worth and importance that belongs only to God becomes an idol in our lives. Idolatry is not a relic of the past. It is a constant problem for every believer. 
maybe money. I struggle with this a lot. Uh, if this, if money can take my focus away from the thing, the focus that should be on the Lord, then it's a problem. I worry about money a lot. That's another one. Worry. Uh, I was talking with Brother KT the other day, and uh, he's mentioning just worrying about his kids all the time can become something that takes preeminence in his life. Uh, I think I worry about the future, all kinds of things. And if, if these things are getting our focus and taking that away from God, it's idolatry. could be possessions. just going to throw some things out here. It could be a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend. could be our children, uh, focusing on them too much. could be our friends, could be family. All these things could be idols if we give them that glory and that place that belongs to the Lord. could be school, could be work could be sports and all these things just keep adding into our lives until there's where's God and all that I mean it just covers our lives and we're so full of idolatry and all these uh, things that we set up in our lives that the, the glory that belongs to God from our lives is spread out to all these other things and we don't have time for that anymore the tragic punchline some of you may be thinking Mike could have been separated and living up in the mountains. It said he was in the hills. He could have not known the truth. Could have been like a West Virginian out in the middle of nowhere, just kind of not knowing, not knowing what's going on. But uh, I would suggest that this is not the case. I think Micah knew very well uh, about the true God. 1831 says, So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made. All the time the house of God was at Shiloh. So the house of God, the true temple where the tabernacle was and where uh, true worship of the true God was going on was at Shiloh. And if we look in the Old Testament, we'll see that Shiloh was in where, I guess, the hill country of Ephraim. So we've got Ephraim here in purple. Uh, there was a mountain range there, kind of the hilly area. So I'm suggesting the hill country of Ephraim is right in here. And where's Shiloh? Right there. So Micah was very close to the true house of worship. This is where God was truly being worshipped, and yet uh, he ignored all that, and he was willing to set up for himself um, the false temple with the false idols. It says, Micah's idolatry had nothing to do with the unavailability of God's house. It had everything to do with his refusal to obey God's word. Back to our hall of shame, moving on. Jonathan, if you remember the script, uh, the scripture that we read, this is the priest. Um, it says that he was wandering up from Bethlehem, uh, seeking for a place for himself. Uh, the problem with this is that he was a Levite priest. Um, probably shouldn't have been in Bethlehem anyway, because Bethlehem was not a Levitical city. Um, the Lord had called the Levitical priests to certain cities, and that's where they were to serve the Lord. And so the problem with Jonathan being a wandering Levite priest was that Levite priests were not supposed to wander. They were supposed to stay in the city that the Lord assigned them to and they were supposed to serve him and uh, display true worship of the Lord in those cities. But he was wandering. This is his problem. Um, oh, sorry, the sin of self-seeking service. This is his shame. Uh, he was seeking to better himself. So he's he basically said to himself, you know, I don't like where the Lord has me. I'm going to go off and I'm going to see if I can find my own place. Maybe for the sake of glory. Maybe he wanted a little more fame. Uh, maybe he wanted to uh, make more money. But he came to Micah. He refused to be satisfied with God's arrangement for his life. So he uh, 
just said, Lord, you know, I don't, I don't like you here, so I'm going to go find my own way. So he was wandering. And when he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, uh, sure enough, you'd think a Levitical priest wandering through the mountains comes upon a house filled with idols, uh, trained in the word of the Lord. Uh, we'll see later that this guy is actually uh, the grandson of Moses. Um, and so probably was there when Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And yet, uh, instead of coming up to this house and saying, no, Micah, you got it all wrong. Here's how. Here's the way you truly worship. He said, hey, what you got going on here? You some idols? Cool. How much are you going to pay me to work for you? So Micah gives him a job, and of course, Jonathan is eager to jump on, uh, forsake his beliefs, his training, uh, maybe to better himself, maybe thinking, yeah, I can be a priest for this whole house. This is awesome. Or maybe it was the ten shekels a year that grabbed him, maybe the room and board. I don't know, maybe the hill country of Ephraim was beautiful and he loved the mountains, but either way, he was uh, seeking to better himself and he was forsaking what the Lord had commanded him. Um, where am I? Oh yeah, this is proof. Okay, sorry. The grandson of Moses. We get this from verse 30. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity. How many of you, your Bible says, instead of Manasseh there, says Moses? Anybody's Bible say that? Some of them do. New International, I know, says Moses. A lot of them say Moses. Manasseh was actually added in um, by scribes to avoid the embarrassment of this grandson. But the true Hebrew text is actually translated son of Moses. So Jonathan was uh, indeed Moses' grandson. Some things that we can learn from the negative example of Jonathan something for you to think about here. Are we seeking our way or God's way? Are we acting to better ourselves or to follow God's calling in our lives? Uh, we see that Jonathan was seeking his own way. He was wandering, looking for fame. I think maybe some of us, um, maybe we think, we, I want to be better known. I want to be more paid. I want to be this, than that, and that. And we get dissatisfied with where the Lord has us. Something else for you to think about. Are we satisfied and thankful for God's arrangement in our lives? A quote from somewhere that I read says this, One of Satan's most subtle devices is to get a Christian dissatisfied with the life circumstances and the area of service God has given him. So if you're dissatisfied, if you truly feel um, that the Lord is calling you to something and you're very dissatisfied with that, I would pray that the Lord would change your heart um, because we see from this example, and, and I, I see this in my life all the time, that I just think, you know, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be doing this, uh, whatever the circumstances may be, and yet if I feel that the Lord's truly calling me to that, um, it would be wrong of me to wander off to try to find my own way, um, seek the way of fortune or fame or anything like that. We must not compromise what we know to be truth in order to better ourselves. This is where we saw Jonathan go wrong, and I think that if we were to apply this to our lives, uh, it would change us. We must not compromise what we know to be the truth in order to better ourselves. What well, we learned from the fact that he was the son of grand, uh, grandson son of grand Moses, the grandson of Moses, godly ancestors do not guarantee godly descendants. Everyone must decide for themselves. Godliness is not genetic. Uh, this is why KT so eagerly asked us to pray for Amanda and his... his uh, daughter uh, Allie and uh, this is why 
Josh asked us to pray for Avery, and, and this is why we pray for the kids in this church, because although they have godly parents, um, this is not a guarantee, and so these girls need to find their own way. Godliness is not genetic. And so, um, although Jonathan was the grandson of Moses, um, he strayed along the way somewhere, forsook his teaching, fell in love with the culture, fell in love with the world, and turned from the Lord. Our final member of the Hall of Shame here, Dan, the tribe of Dan. Uh, this may be my favorite application, probably hit the closest to home. Uh, didn't really get it from the text at first, but if we dig a little deeper, we see um, that their shame is the sin of comfortable living. Oh. The Danites, just like, just like Jonathan, the Danites shouldn't have been traveling. They shouldn't have been wandering, looking for a place. Um, if we remember, after Joshua, during the time of Joshua, what did the Lord want the Israelites to do with the, with the promised land? Anybody? He wanted them to conquer it. He wanted them to drive out all the people. Drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Philistines. Drive them all out. Uh, as we've seen in the book of Judges and Joshua, the Israelites weren't too faithful with doing that. And I'd say the tribe of Dan least of all. Um, they were set up. Uh, we'll look at a map in just a second. But they were set up in an area... Um, and they had the Lord's promise. They had the Lord's promise that if you follow me by my power, even though you are small and weak, you'll be able to conquer these great nations. And yet Dan took the easy road out, and they said, you know what? I think uh, we don't want to take that promise. We're going to just go look for our own way and try to find a little quiet place that we can conquer. So they, they uh, suffered from a lack of faith and refusal to claim God's promises. They took the comfortable road. So instead of... Uh, taking these enemies head on and conquering the promised land as they were commanded by God and as they were promised victory, um, they kind of tucked their tails and ran, uh, turned up and said, we're going to go find our own place where we can conquer them by our own strength. Um, so they took that glory from God. If you note Joshua, I don't have time to look at it right now, but if you note Joshua 19, 40 through 48, Dan was given uh, a place in the land. Uh, it says that they were wandering because they didn't have a place. They were given a place. If you look down here at the bottom, in that little text, if you can read it, it says, original land given to Dan. So they had that right down below Ephraim. And yet, they said, you know, we're not going to take this. We don't want this promise. Uh, we're too lazy or something to fight these Amorites, even though God had promised it. And they said, we're going to wander. So they took this little road up, all the way up over here past Naphtali, into that little area. And they struck, that's where they found the little town of Laish. And they said, you know, these people are weak. They're tiny. They got no one to defend them. We're going to go. We're going to take the easy way out. We're going to find our own little village. We're going to conquer it. And that's where we're going to live. Forget what God says. We don't want that area down there that he commanded us to have. We're going to go find our own way. Kind of similar to Jonathan in that respect. They turned, they also, uh, not only did they turn to the easy way of finding their own place, uh, to live, but they turn to the easy way of idolatry. Um, they're going through the woods, and the five spies are like, "Hey, Mike has got some idols over here. Let's go steal them." Uh, they probably did this because um, they wanted a man-made god who would fit their lifestyle without making any demands. So they probably said, "You know, the Lord of our forefathers, He's making too many demands. Let's go find our own way. Let's get our own god. Let's get our own priest." And we'll just set it up the way we want it, and then we'll live life how we want it. So they took that, uh, they stole the, the idols and the priests from Micah, and they went on their own way, happy with their own God that they had made them. So they turned to the easy way. Instead of 
facing up and saying, you know, the Lord, we're tiny, but the Lord has called us to take on these huge armies. That's too hard. Forget about that. We're going to go steal these idols, make our own religion, forget what he tells us, we're going to do what we want, go take this little town of Laish, and we'll live there. So what we can learn from the example of Dan, how often in our lives do we choose the comfortable way over stepping out in faith in God's promises? I think this applies to a lot of areas of our lives. Evangelism, um, the Lord commanded us to go therefore and make disciples, and yet I think we're like, tuck our tails between our legs and say, that's too hard, I don't want to be looked at as not cool in front of my friends, and so I'm just going to kind of cower and go find my own way. Um, I can't say it really any better than uh application I ran across in Gary Inrig's book, Hearts of Iron Feet of, what is it? Hearts of Iron Feet of Clay. Good. Uh, and this is great. This is powerful. If you haven't listened to anything I have to say, open those big ears and listen up here. There is no greater danger faced by North American Christians than the love of ease. It is so tempting to carve out a leash for ourselves, a quiet little island of peace where we can live in affluence and forget all about the needy of the world outside and the enemies of the gospel and the radical claims of Jesus Christ on our lives. One thing is obvious. If you want to live in Laish, you must become an idol worshiper. No consistent New Testament Christian can live a life of ease. No lover of the cross can retire from God's mission in the world. If you want to settle down into a life as a comfortable Christian, casually unconcerned about the call of God, you're going to have to serve an idol. A couple extra applications. Um, we see in all these cases, in the four people of the Hall of Shame, what they did was right in their own eyes. If people do what is right in their own eyes, they will end up doing what is wrong in the eyes of God. We saw this with the mother, lying out of greed, stealing from the Lord. We saw this with Micah, uh, forgetting the scriptures, turning to his own way, making his own idols. Uh, we saw this with Jonathan, seeking to better himself, uh, the sin of self-service. And we saw this with the tribe of Dan, uh, Forgetting the Lord's promises, taking the comfortable way, taking the easy way. Uh, a reminder here, Proverbs 14:12. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads to death. Just as all of these hall of shamers, we also live in a society with no standards. Uh, we read there that there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of sounds like today... Um, Everybody does what is right in our own eyes. Um, but our standard must be the Word of God, and we must choose to obey. Um, despite the world around us, despite what they're telling us God should look like, despite what they're telling us we need to have more money, we need to think about ourselves, we need to have possession, we need to prosper ourselves, the Word of God needs to be our final authority on anything, and that needs to be our standard. And like I said before, it's a hard thing to do. I struggle with it all the time, but we must choose to obey. So I'd encourage you with that this morning. Uh, Hopefully I've been able to portray clearly some of the applications of the things the Lord has been teaching me. Um, let's just pray. God, we need you in our lives. Um, please forgive us for anywhere that we've turned to an idol, Lord. Anything that in our lives that we've put uh, in the place where you deserve all the glory. Uh, forgive us for living comfortably and for tucking our tails and running uh, Forgive us for seeking our own way, Lord, to better ourselves. Forgive us for turning from your promises. Um, just pray that as we go from here, Lord, that we would apply these things to our hearts. Um, 
Help us maybe not to be so comfortable in the way that we live, um, but that above all, Lord, that we would obey your word and that you would give your spirit just as a guide, as a conscience, um, to obey what we read in Scripture and not turn to our own way and try to make up our own uh, way of living, Lord. We love you and we thank you above all for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.